We all have trust issues. We all have people and places in life where we wonder if they have our best interest in mind. Maybe for you, it's people in power. You don't trust them. Politicians, who can? Or maybe for you, you've got some trust issues with the opposite sex. You've been burned in the past. Or maybe for you, you just struggle to trust Houston drivers in general. I hate to admit this, but I gotta be honest with you. Uh, One class of person that I I struggle to trust are my own children. My nine-year-old son, when he says to me, I just want one more drink of water and then I'll finally fall asleep. I don't trust him. My daughter, when she texts me and says, dad, dot, 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 and I text her back, say, I'm not giving you money, and she writes back and says, I wasn't going to ask for money. I don't trust her. I don't believe her. It always leads to money. Who is it for you? There are some people who have some serious trust trust issues, not with other human beings, but their primary trust issue is with God. Maybe they've been burned by the church or organized religion in the past, or maybe they've gone through some really difficult things and they think to themselves, well, if there was a good God out there, well, then he's certainly handed me a bad situation. And so they take the fist in their heart and they just kind of shake it at the divine, right? The reason I bring all of that up, our trust issues, is because today we're continuing a teaching series called The Tipping Point where we're looking at what it takes to be a person who goes beyond the bare minimum of generosity in life, a person who goes beyond the tipping point and who lives a life of of life-changing generosity towards others. And what we've been asking throughout this series is what is it that that kind of person, the person who, who engages in transformative generosity for the sake of other people, what is it that those people know that maybe I don't know or you don't know? And and one of the realizations that I've come to in wrestling with today's text is this, is that at the heart of real extravagant generosity, something that that people who are those incredible givers who who create those stories that other people have to share, right? What they know, among many other things, is this. They know that God can be trusted. You could put it like this. They know that, that God's got me. At the heart of extravagant generosity, ultimately, is a trust in God. God's got me. Now, if we really want to dig into um, what really is the heart of our trust issues, be it with other people or with, with God, at the heart of our trust issues is a desire for control. We want to control the outcome in life, and we want to make sure that we have all the resources in our hands to make sure our life goes the way in which we want it to go. And yet what you have to understand, and this is what Jesus is going to get to in just a minute in today's text, is that generosity and the desire for control can't coincide. They can't live together. At the center of generosity is an ability to let go. You you let go of stuff. You let go of time, treasure, resources. You let go of all these things in order to bless someone or something else. And yet control, uh, a hunger for it, 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 it... it dictates that you, you hold on to things. You, you, you lay hold of things. You keep what you have and you grasp for more. So, so it's difficult, if not impossible, to try and be a generous person, yet also be a person who's clamoring for control in their lives. And, and that's a big part of what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 6. He's addressing, at, at first, the futility of our attempts at control, which is at the heart of our trust issues with God and with others. So Jesus is, Jesus is teaching a crowd of people. He's in the middle of his most epic sermon. You think Sunday mornings are long? Oh, man, you're going to have a problem with Jesus. 
because he's in the middle of an epic, epic sermon. And right smack dab in the middle of it, he starts talking about birds and lilies of the field, and he's talking about our struggle with control, our, our need to control the outcomes in life, and so we clamor for control over all the things in the present. And so you need to understand, Jesus is talking to a group of people who, who, who were anxious and, and full of worries about their everyday needs being met, about the uncertainties of the future as well. And these are people who, from all we can tell, were, were living really hand to mouth. Jesus' audience, yes, had some religious leaders, some, some social leaders, but largely, from what we can tell, was, was mostly the poor, the marginalized. Uh, people who were living uh, a hand-to-mouth agrarian existence who had really tangible fears about what they would wear and what they would eat and whether or not the cold wind whipping through Jerusalem would, would make its way that night through whatever shelter they had hobbled together. This is who Jesus is talking about. And yet even with them who had real, real anxieties, real fears, real worries, Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue with them, confronting the futility of their control. Listen to what he says in verse 27. Let's read this again. Jesus says to his audience and to us, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? In other words, what does your grabbing for control actually accomplish? Let's be honest. What does it actually get you? I know you have real needs and you're really worried about today, but being anxious about it, worried about it, being focused on your ability to control the outcomes in the situation, what does it actually accomplish? Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. He and we know the answer. And the answer is, what's it accomplish? Not much. And the truth Jesus is trying to get the crowd to open up to and us to open up to is this, is that despite all of our efforts, despite our clamoring for control, we have very, very, very little of it. And the first step toward addressing our trust issues with God and with others, which is what's getting in the way of our generosity, is, is admitting that we have, we have very little control. And Jesus is inviting us to confess that, to recognize that, to call that out. You know, you and I, we spend so much time thinking and wrestling through the big decisions in life. You know, where, where, where am I going to go to college? That was one of the first big decisions, right? And then who, who am I going to marry? That was, that was a big decision, right? Uh, and, then, and then what am I going to do for work? That was a big decision. Or how are we going to get ready for retirement? That's a big decision. Life is full of big decisions, and, and those big decisions matter. And... Uh, but we spend so much time wrestling with those and wanting to control the outcomes of those things and worrying and anxious about those things. And yet, and yet then real life happens and we discover that, that the course of our life is largely determined not by the big decisions that we wrestle with, but by tiny little things that we never saw coming and can't control. Like, you know, you, you, you prayed like crazy for what school you would go to. And maybe your prayers were answered, but then but then the most life-changing thing was you standing in line at a Starbucks and bumping into a cute blonde and now all of a sudden you've met the love of your life and you're married. What? <laughs> Could have predicted that. Or, or you're, you're driving down I-10 and somebody, somebody makes a last-second decision to cross into your lane and you never saw it coming and, and then there's tragedy in your story. Or you're sitting at your job and a seemingly random task gets randomly assigned to you and yet you discover some, 
some skills that you didn't know you have and a passion you'd never known. And now the trajectory of your professional career is going in a different direction. You see, we, we think there's all this control that we have over the big things, but then these little things happen that, that actually take our lives on these detours that, that we simply can't control. And Jesus is trying to help us understand. You clamor for control, you don't really have it, and admitting that is part of the path to freedom here. Now, as an aside, something that's really interesting is that there is a, a Stanford professor named Robert Rapolsky, and he has, he has put together a, a study along with some other scientists where he has determined, he believes, that science now proves that mankind actually has no free will at all. What he argues, and I don't really agree with him, but what he argues is that our genetics and our biology determine every single decision that we make. He has what's called like a hyper-determinist view of human existence. Every decision that you make, the fact that you're here this morning, part of your genetics. The fact that you stopped at Starbucks, part of your genetics. The fact that you were late, not my fault, part of my genetics. <laughs> now, now, we wouldn't go that far, N not at all. Uh, what the Christian faith teaches and what common sense tells us too is that we have agency over our lives, but what Jesus reminds us is that even though we have agency over our lives, we do not have the ultimate authority over our lives. We do not have nearly as much control as we would like, and so therefore he says, Remember, your anxiety, your worrying, your wrestling over today in order to control tomorrow, it is not getting you any, any of the control, ultimately, that you clamor for. Instead, what Jesus does in this teaching is he encourages us to change our focus. He calls out our lack of control in order to pivot us towards something better. Rather than focus on your lack of control, to focus on something better. Else. And what he wants us to focus on is the persistent provision of God. Look again at what he says. Matthew chapter 6, verses 26 and then 28 through 29. Look at the language Jesus uses. Look at the, the word pictures that he paints. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So he's using a very common, very mundane example. Look, bird. They're not worried about food. Aren't you not more precious than a bird? And then he says, why are you anxious about clothing? Oh, consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't toil or spin, yet I tell you, even the great King Solomon in all of his glory didn't look as good as those flowers. Aren't you more valuable than birds and flowers? You see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's using the everyday and the mundane and the easily overlooked to, to awaken our eyes to the fact that God's provision is omnipresent. God is meeting needs and providing and caring, not just for you, but for every single thing around you. Every atom of existence is held together, put in motion, allowed to be because of him, as well as birds getting fed and flowers being pretty. It's all him. Jesus says, take your eyes off of the control you don't have. It is not getting you what you want and pivot towards the omnipresent provision of God. It is everywhere that you look. Even Solomon in all his glory was not as beautiful as these lilies of the field. And are you not more, more valuable than a flower that is here today and gone tomorrow? Jesus is making a particular kind of argument in this teaching. It was, it was typical of rabbis of his day. They would make an argument, what's called an argument from lesser to greater. You take a lesser thing and show that it matters, and then you prove that the greater thing must matter even more. 
So Jesus says, if God cares about flowers that are here today, gone tomorrow, if God cares about feeding the birds, which are of little consequence, does he not also care for you, who is of great consequence to him? And of course, the answer is what? Yes, if he ensures that the birds get fed, you are going to be fine. He's turning our eyes to the fact that God's provision is omnipresent. It is all over the place. Jesus wants you to shift your focus from the control you don't have to the extravagant provision of God that is all over the place. Now, now you might be tempted to think, well, that's kind of a, a simplistic ask from Jesus. Oh, don't focus on the things I can't control. Instead, focus on all the small blessings. Is that really it, Matt? Well, kind of, yeah. But I don't think it's as simplistic as, as, as you might assert or some might assert. I actually think that it's a sign of a, a pretty healthy faith, even though Jesus says you have little faith. I think it's a sign of, uh, of an active faith, at least. I mean, think about when you go to the optometrist and you have to look at the eye chart. It's... It's the strongest eyes that can see the smallest letters, right? I think it is the, it is the mature, it is the growing, it is the, it is the active faith that can see the small things and in them perceive, perceive the goodness of God, the activity of God, the presence and the provision of God. Can you see the goodness of God in the small things? When was the last time you tried? Like the small things, like... Like the, the first sip of coffee in the morning, it's a, it's a gift of God. Like, like the sound of grandkids who get dropped off at your house every single weekend, it's a, it's a gift of God. Or, or, or a paycheck that just like appears, it appears in your bank account and it's there. You can look at the app and it's, it's there. That's a, that's a gift of God. Or, or the Texans playing way above their capacity. Like, that shouldn't happen. It's a gift of God. Are you able to perceive and see the mundane gifts of God? What, what, are, what are your examples of, of food for birds and pretty flowers? What is it that's so easy to overlook? What are the smallest things on the eye chart that other people can't see, but you, you, with eyes of faith, you can perceive and say, oh, that small thing other people can't see, that. You know what that is? See, I can see it. You know what it is? That is a gift of God. Jesus is saying, take your focus off of the control you don't have. Put it onto the omnipresent gifts of God. And you see, what happens when we do this is it kind of like builds this faith muscle when we do it. It builds, it builds our confidence and in, 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 in our trust in an important characteristic of God. A characteristic of God that is very, very simple uh, but, but is essential to having a heart full of trust, which then leads to a lifestyle of generosity. And that simple truth, a, a, a turning point truth that generous people understand is this, and you might roll your eyes at it, but it's an important one. The truth is this, God is good. At the heart of an ability to trust God so that you don't have to clamor for control is, is, is a basic foundational belief that God is good. That, that he's got your back, that he's looking out for you, that he cares for you, that he blesses you abundantly in ways, in ways in which you ultimately cannot even ultimately see or measure or count. God is good. God is good. That is at the foundation of generosity. He's not only good, but he displays his goodness. 
He displays his goodness in indiscriminately and generously giving all good gifts to us, as James says. It's hard for me to to, to grasp and hard for me to share with you just how revolutionary of an idea this was that Jesus was teaching at this moment. I don't know what you know about kind of first century, first century pagan spirituality, but, but in the first century, uh, Jesus' audience would have been very familiar with a, a hyper-polytheistic society where, where there were gods, lowercase g, gods, deities all over the place for everything, being pandered to all the time. So you had a god of fertility. You had a god for rain. You had a God for success. You had a God for pleasure. And all of these gods, they were not nice gods. They, they, were, they were gods who needed to be constantly pleased, constantly appeased. They were petulant. They were always angry. And in order to get the things that you wanted, in order to have the kid, have success, have good crops, you needed to constantly be worried about, have I angered the gods or have I pleased the gods? And so your whole life was about, oh, I don't want the gods to be mad at me. I need to get what I want. So let me go offer something. Let me perform in some capacity so I can please the gods and get what I want. Because the gods are withholding. The gods are demanding. The gods need a sacrifice. The gods are not good. But I can force them to be good if I am good. That was the context in which everyone, apart from the Jewish people, everyone lived. And it was oppressive and awful. But, but I would argue to you that the world hasn't changed all that much from the first century, that we're still a hyper-polytheistic culture. It's just a kind of secular spirituality. And we have all of these other gods with other names that we're constantly trying to appease. It's about, it's about having a certain kind of life, right? Uh, I want to have this kind of career, so I got to go appease that God. I want to have this kind of body, so I got to go appease that God. I want my family to look like this, so I got to go appease that God. We don't call it gods. We just, we call it something else, but we're still offering sacrifices going, man, how do I get the universe to bend in my direction and give me what I want? I need to, I need to worry more. I need to try harder. I need to perform better in order to get what I want in all these different areas of life. It's the same game. And then here comes Jesus. And he says to the first century crowd, and he says to us, this revolutionary message, hey, there's only one God. And he is not mad at you. Not only that, he is not withholding from you. And you don't have to chase him down. And you don't have to please him. And he's not petulant. And he doesn't whine. He doesn't say, well, maybe I'll bless you if you bless me. He doesn't do any of that stuff. You know what he does? He gives everything. He gives everything extravagantly. He meets every single one of your needs. He's not withholding. He's not mean. He is what? Starts with a G, ends with an UD. He is? He is good. This was a transformative idea that God is generous. And he can be trusted. Now, Jesus would go on to prove this point. Fast forward a handful of chapters in Matthew, and this Jesus who is talking about birds and lilies is, is tacked to a cross. And he's not talking about birds. He is shedding his own blood. And the world is looking on going, why, 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 why is Jesus dying? And the reason Jesus is dying is this, is because God is good. 
Now, that, that blows our minds. We see Jesus dying for the sins of the world. And we say, how in the world is that a good thing? Here's how it's a good thing. Whatever of God needed to be pleased, whatever of God needed a payment for the sacrifice, needed a payment, rather, for the sins of mankind, whatever of God needed a sacrifice to atone for the evils in this world, whatever God needed in order for wrongs to be righted, in order for justice to be done, Whatever the high and holy demands of God are for humanity, Jesus has, has offered it, has fulfilled it in his own flesh and blood. Jesus is the ultimate provision of God for the people. And now through Jesus' death on the cross and his rise from the grave, there is, there is mercy and grace for every sin, every evil committed by every person. Not just the ones in the past, but the ones in the present and the ones in the future. We sang a moment ago, Jesus paid it all. He paid for the past, he paid for the present, and he paid for the future. Jesus is the provision of God for the greatest of human needs. And he is the greatest proof that God is good because your greatest need is to be right with the Father. Your greatest evil are the sins that you've committed. And in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of it is dealt with, all of it is paid for. And now through faith in Jesus and who he is, you and I, we are clothed better than the lilies of the field. We are clothed better than King Solomon in all his glory because we are clothed, we are wrapped in mercy, grace, and forgiveness forever. The sacrifice of Jesus is the greatest proof of the goodness of God. Jesus would, would go on in his teaching to say this. Look at verse 33. He's, he's rounding out the teaching, right? He's going into like application mode here, right? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So, so let's follow the logic of his teaching. Your, your desperate desire for control doesn't get you what you want. But God, his provision is, is omnipresent. God is good. God can be trusted. So now, now, knowing these things, what do you do? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You're thinking, what in the world does that mean? Here's what that means. Shift your focus. It's an invitation to refocus. Shift your focus to the person of God and his work of provision. The kingdom of God and his righteousness, his goodness. Shift your focus to who he is and what he's done. Shift your focus. Shift your focus to the, the simple pleasures that he provides, the constant provision that, that he offers. Shift your focus to the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ, the fact that every, every, every battle that you could ever have in front of you has been fought and won in Jesus Christ for you. Shift your focus to that. And all these things, Jesus says, will be added to you. It's a promise. Now, no, Jesus is not saying that if you shift your focus to the goodness of God that is pervasive in this world, that you will get what you want. What Jesus is saying is essentially this, that it will transform your vision and you will see, you will see with the eyes of faith that for the most part, you, you already possess all the things that you need. all these things will be added to you. Do, you. do you already have a life you don't deserve? Yes. Do you already have breath in your lungs? Yes. Do you, do you have people who love you? 
Yes. Do you, do, you, do you have forgiveness and mercy for every stupid thing you've ever done? Yes, yes, yes. And yes, yes, you have it all. These things will be added to you. You have it. You have it. I, I love how this teaching ends. Verse 34, Jesus gives us some, some sage, somewhat pithy advice. Verse 34, Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You and I might say in modern language, take it one day at a time. Take it one day at a time, people of faith. And again, it's an invitation. Rather than focus on a future you can't control, shift your focus to the provision and the care of God that is overwhelming if you choose to see it in the present. Shift your focus to the provision of the present. You know, you and I, we have an opportunity this week. It's Thanksgiving week. You get to spend time with your family. Yay. You get to be with friends who are family. That's wonderful. We have an opportunity this week, this week of all weeks throughout the year, to focus on the things that we possess rather than the things we can't control. Let let us make the most of that opportunity. May you have a heart full of prayer that says, Lord, open my eyes to your constant provision. Help me to see the many blessings. Help me to see the blessing of family, the blessing of friends who are like family, the blessing of good food, the blessings of the Detroit Lions having such a great year. They're my team. Help me to see these blessings. And understand, my friends, that as we do, as we do, as we focus on the goodness of God, our trust in God increases and our issues with him wane. And when your trust in God increases and you realize that he's got it, he's got you, that he is good, and that you ultimately have the bulk of what you, what you really need, when you realize that you have that in your hands already, the easier it is the more natural it is to open up those hands to people and places that need it too.